There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. This is one of the out-of-the-way places. The unvisited places. Bleak, wasted, dying. This is a farmhouse. Handmade, crude. A house without electricity or gas. A house untouched by progress. This is the woman who lives in the house. A woman who's been alone for many years. A strong, simple woman whose only problem up until this moment has been that of acquiring enough food to eat. A woman about to face terror, which is, even now, coming at her from the Twilight Zone. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host Jimbo, and joined once again by that great co-host from the Fifth Dimension. 80Z from the Northern Layer today, we're on separate sites. Uh, ready <laughs> yeah, to separate enjoy sites, not this. face-to-face. Yeah, ready to enjoy this I uh, have been episode. looking... I have been looking forward to this episode for quite a while now because this is one that Eric and I have a difference of opinions on, and it's going to be fun to banter back and forth. Um, and I wrote an ode to Eric at the end of this that I'm going to read, <laughs> which uh, everybody can uh, have fun with. So yeah. this is Season 2, Episode 15, The Invaders. But Eric, before we get to that, you got a question just want you to let you know, we are recording this on January 18, 2023. And I have a list of celebrity birthdays today. Okay. So here are some list of the birthdays. This is a great day, and you're going to notice some of these people from this. So we have Kevin Costner, turned 68 today. All right. The late, great Cary Grant. No. Batista from the World Wrestling Federation, or entertainment, <laughs> if you will. Uh, Danny Kaye from... Uh, White what Christmas? What was that? Uh, yes, thank you. I was getting there. The Hoff, David Hasselhoff. Oh. Also has a birthday today. Jenna Fisher from The Office, paid Pam mm-hmm. Beasley. Mm-hmm. And yes, none other than Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill. Wow. So there you have what a what a great day for celebrity birthdays. Yeah, there's a lot of notable uh actors and actresses on there for sure. Um all right, let's let me go ahead and launch off into our episode. Uh it's entitled The Invaders. It is the Twilight Zone. Season number two, episode number 15, and it was directed by Douglas Hayes, and it was written by Richard Matheson. And we have some featured music in this episode noted. It was the original score was by Jerry Goldsmith. And this uh, particular episode first broadcast on January the 27th, 1961. And now it's time for everybody's favorite, the world famous. It's time for our little segment we like to call On This Day in History. All right. On this day in film and TV history, that's January 27th. In 1979, the 36th Golden Globe Awards. 
Um, the best picture was Midnight Express, and John Voight and Jane Fonda both won leading actor and actress roles. They received Golden Globes for the movie Coming Home. Haven't seen either one of those movies. I was, let's see, two years old when Midnight Express came out. I don't think I've ever seen that or even parts of it. Nor the movie Coming Home, but there you go. For 1979, that's for movies. There wasn't a whole lot um, for this particular date in movie history. But for television history, there's something I have seen, and I'm sure Jimbo's probably seen it too. On January 27th, 1976, The Laverne and Shirley Show, the TV spinoff from Happy Days, starring Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams, premieres on ABC TV. Jimbo, were you a fan of... Laverne and Shirley, or have you seen it? Absolutely. And we'll do it our way. Yes, our <laughs> yeah. way. Make right. all your dreams come true. Yeah. So there you go. There's uh, your This Day in History. Very uh, nice. Very nice. Yeah. So let me go on with production costs. Um, the production cost for the Twilight Zone episode was $44,912.46. And when we adjust that for inflation in today's dollars in 2023, we're looking at $439,593.85 with an 878% increase in today's dollars. I don't have any below-the-line charges or anything like that, Jimbo. I don't know if you do. If not, we can go ahead with the very small cast uh, for this particular episode. Yeah, let me, let me go ahead and take away this cast off your hands, Eric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, this might be the shortest cast of any of the Twilight Zone series, um, that you're going to come across, uh, stars mainly one woman, which is Agnes Moorhead, where all she's known as in this episode is woman. Um, you may remember her from the movie Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which is one of my dad's favorite movies, uh, which we have covered in the podcast, I think all the way back in like episode 15, uh, way back, me and Terrence covered it, uh, where she played Velma Crothers. Uh, she was also in Bewitched, the TV show, where she played Samantha's mom. And then also she was in Citizen Kane, where she played the mom in Citizen Kane, too. So yep. um, very, very well-decorated uh, actress. Um, and she just had that look about her. She has a distinct look. Um, mm -hmm. So then you have the great Douglas Hayes, uh, where he played the voice of a spoiler astronaut mm -hmm. uh, which he is uncredited for he was in tells of the 77th uh, bingo lancers from 1956 he was also in a bunch of tv shows which i didn't write down and then you also had the great rod serling as an area self-host so i do believe eric has more of a little bit of a biography on agnes moorhead which i'm going to kick it back to him right now yeah it's uh, it's more um just i guess a, a list of trivia that as much as i may not appreciate this episode um or like it as much i really gained a lot of respect for agnes moorhead as i kind of dug in and did a little deep dive on her life and who she was as a person but uh, a very accomplished lady very uh, classy lady um she actually attended the new york academy of dramatic arts um she well-educated as well. She received a bachelor's degree with a major in biology from Muscom University in Concord, Ohio. Later, she received an honorary literary degree from the same university. Then, she received her master's degree in English from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. So, very well-educated. I mean, man, that's, that's a lot of degrees behind her name. She taught in high school and directed school plays and coached the oratory team. 
in Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin. And the team won numerous contests. Can you imagine having her as a drama teacher in, in high school? <laughs> yeah, I'm I know. Sure they, that's why they cleaned up. So um, she was the daughter of a Presbyterian minister, uh, and his name was Dr. John Henderson Moorhead. Um, she took in a foster son shortly after her final separation from her first husband, Jack G. Lee. Now, I couldn't find anything, but I don't think she had any naturally born children. I don't know if that was just because she couldn't have children or whatever, but I thought that was uh, kind of interesting that she took in a, a foster son, and she uh, did have a son named Jack. She initially turned down the role of Endora as be, in Bewitched in 1964, but reconsidered when Elizabeth Montgomery asked her in person when they met at a department store. Moorhead joined the cast, not expecting the series to last more than one season, let alone become a long-running hit. Can you imagine like meeting them meeting in a uh, department store? Hey, will you join this cast? Uh, you know, just kind of... That was kind of interesting to me how it all came about, that it was just a conversation in a department store. She was the first woman to co-host the Academy Awards with Dick Powell in 1948. During the first season of Bewitched in 1964, she did not like the aspects of the script, but felt she could not complain to director William Asher because he was... Uh, the star Elizabeth Montgomery's husband. So she didn't feel like she could go to Elizabeth's husband and complain. Uh, she did not enjoy filming Bewitched in 1964 since it forced her to get up at 4.45 a.m., start makeup at 6 a.m., and continue filming often until after 8 p.m. Now, this next little bit of trivia is kind of interesting to me. She unfortunately died of cancer, as did Susan Hayward, John Wayne and director Dick Powell, as well as other cast and many crew members on the film The Conqueror in 1956. Now get this. Some people strongly believe that unknown, uh, unknown by those involved with the film at the time, the film was shot on location at a site uh, that received heavy fallout from atmospheric nuclear testing. And it was then located at the Nevada proving grounds and that makes me think of uh, the latest uh, remember the indiana jones crystal skulls right 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 caught in that refri that lead refrigerator and the nuclear fallout testing facilities that went on in the 1950s so so did, did sorry go ahead did they did they all die while filming that or after it was completed i, I think or? they all got cancer after the because fact, of that and they okay. all were on that film and so you know two and two equal four they they kind of tied up some you know made some connections there and they think that a lot of people maybe died of cancer because of that exposure so she was a devoutly religious woman she often came to the set with her script in one hand and her bible in the other hand um, she along with orson wells was the founder and charter member of the famous mercury excuse me mercury theater players and orson wells became enamored of her while she filmed the brief role of Charles Kane's mother in Citizen Kane, 1941, but they remained friends and collaborators over a few subsequent films. And if you want to see a, a, a really good uh, acting job, her, she was great in Citizen Kane, very cold as the mother mm -hmm. and turning him over to the... I went back and watched that again this week just you know, as I was kind of doing a deep dive on her a little bit. Now get this one. This is another interesting fact about her. She is she was actually survived by her mother, Mary Mildred, who was born in 1883 and and passed away in 1990. 
who was 90 years old when da Agnes died in 1974. Mary, known as Millie, died at the age of 106 in the year that wow. Agnes would have turned 90. So her mom lived to be 106 years old. That was uh, pretty interesting to me as well. Yeah. She actually was the, and this is the final trivia point, she actually was the surrogate grandmother of Aaron Murphy uh, while working on Bewitched. In real life, Murphy never got to spend time with her own grandparents. So Aaron Murphy was the little girl who played Tabitha, uh, mm -hmm. the daughter on Bewitched. So I thought that was interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. Jimbo, you got anything going forward? Uh, not yet. Not okay. yet, but I got some stuff coming. Okay, I'm going to take a <laughs> quick drink here because uh, my voice is breaking up here. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I'm going to move on with the plot. I wasn't going to make it through without taking a little <laughs> drink of water. <laughs> so the plot of this particular uh, episode for The Twilight Zone is an old woman who lives alone in a ramshackle farmhouse comes face to face with alien invaders. She hears something on the roof and then finds a flying saucer, perhaps six or seven feet across, from which emerges two small robots. She fights them as best she can and eventually succeeds in destroying their ship. The nature of the invaders, however, is not immediately obvious, however. So there you go. There's dun, dun, a little dun. synopsis or plot of this episode. And I don't know if, Jimbo, you got it pulled up or not. Um, I'm just going to kind of break it down into basic scenes. Um, basically, the, the episode starts out with her in the kitchen. Uh, she's dubbed as the old woman. It's a ramshack. Well, for, of course, you start out with Rod's prologue. And then he describes her, her time and place and the house that she lives in. So she lives in a, a ramshackle farmhouse with no electricity, no gas, no running water and all that stuff. She starts out the first scene in the, the in the kitchen. Uh, I would describe it as scene, uh, kitchen to rooftop to back in the main part of the house with the fireplace, um, back to the rooftop, and the, the final conclusion. I mean, it's, it's pretty simply broken down. It's it's a small set. That might be why it only costs like forty six thousand to to produce it. Uh, I'm sure the sets weren't obviously that complicated. And, um, yeah, I think this one was actually scheduled from my notations. I think it was scheduled for four days of filming, which was kind of odd. I think a lot of the directors and writers thought it was odd because there was, you know, the, the thing that sticks out the most is there's no dialogue in this episode. Um, there's not even a running monologue or a, a running dialogue as uh, a four- episodes that we've seen in season two such as uh the king nine will not return and uh, nervous man in a four dollar room um at least th those were singularly acted but there was uh there was a dialogue or an inner monologue in in both of those episodes this one nothing it's just her and um uh, doing her she I, I can't take anything away from agnes moorhead her her performance in this is really good um so yeah that's kind of the breakdown of the episode um, Jimbo, you got any um, trivia or things that you want to uh, share yeah. at the beginning I'm, here? I've got a lot of stuff for this. There is a ton of information. So I'm going to my two trusty books, The uh, Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zikri. Mm -hmm. And I also have Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone, the 50th Anniversary Tribute by uh, Douglas Brody and Carol Serling that I have some information out of. But let me go ahead and throw this in here right now. 
Um, it has been mentioned previously that Richard Matheson was and is a master of the horror form, yet none of his Twilight Zone scripts to this point had explored this genre, not until The Invaders. Again, Buck Houghton looked to Douglas Hayes to pilot a difficult episode. Immediately, Hayes had a number of suggestions. For the lead, he wanted Agnes Moorhead, an actress who, during her long career, played everything from Orson Welles' mother in Citizen Kane to Elizabeth Montgomery's in Bewitched. The reason that I suggested her, says Hayes, was that she had done a radio show called Sorry, Wrong Number, which was a half-hour tour de force where she used nothing but her voice. And I said, here's a half-hour tour de force where the woman doesn't use her voice at all. All might have seemed clear to Hayes, but not to Agnes Moorhead. She looked at me very curiously when she came in, Hayes recalls. I said, what is it? She said, well, I've been reading the script and I've been trying to find my part. There was only one woman and there were no lines, and most actresses skimming through a script looked to see what the woman has to say. She looked through the whole part and couldn't find anything the woman had to say. So there you have uh, what Agnes Moore had thought of the script so far. Yeah, um, I think I have somewhere in the trivia that I wrote down here that she initially refused um, to to do it because it didn't have any lines. Um she had to be kind of persuaded. Um, this is the only episode with one person, Agnes Moorhead, who has no spoken dialogue. The only spoken dialogue is uh, by those seemingly unknown aliens who turn out to be humans. And then Rod, of course, in his dialogue. But he, he's sort of a force that's outside of the Twilight Zone coming in. So, you know, there's some debate of whether, um, you know, that's attributable or not. But this is another interesting piece of trivia mrs moorhead's or miss moorhead's striking solo performance drew on the mime skills she had developed when she was a young actress when she studied with the legendary pantomime artist marcel marceau in paris and you know there again man this lady was well traveled well educated and i mean it's very impressive like uh her acting skills and, and she does do a great again i'm i'll say it again she does a really great job of uh acting without any dialogue i can't imagine how difficult that would be um anything else jimbo uh, if, if you don't have anything uh, not right yet I, top, I, i've got a couple things here not not yet once we start getting into the actual invaders i have a lot of how they made their costumes and stuff like that so oh we'll right that. right um so inside of the episode i'll just go back in, in a general overview so when the invaders attempt to you know they have the spacemen, if you will, have ray guns. They try to injure her that way. They steal one of her knives, right? And they try to stab her through the door. That's a pretty interesting scene. And then uh, they blow a hole in the side of the uh, the door, a little small hole that they can get in. Um, so, um, so those are kind of highlighted scenes inside. But um, just by way of general trivia, I'll just start working my way down, and maybe we'll, you know, maybe we can discuss some things, Jimbo. We can stir it up a little bit and you can this might spring some things in your mind but uh, this was rod serling's favorite episode from an outside writer so rod mm -hmm. thought pretty highly of um, this episode as as uh, it was written by someone else when agnes moorhead learned that she had no dialogue in the episode she initially refused to do it that's what i mentioned earlier rod serling a direct and director douglas hayes had to convince her to actually do it so yeah um she wasn't on board right away uh, I'll skip this one because it's about the puppets, but uh, as in other episodes, this one uses the United Planets Cruiser, this famous 
C-570D spacecraft from the movie. Jimbo, I know you're familiar with it. Forbidden Planet, baby. Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet. Another one, and Artos is going to give me grief for that. Uh, That was another dud. So the C-570D, which this is actually a replica. It's not the original one because she destroys it. I'm going to give it away. Spoiler alert, she destroys the flying saucer at the end of this episode. Uh, the sound just before the ramp of the spaceship lowers is the same sound the communicators from the communicators from a television show called The Man from Uncle. And I had to look this up because I had no idea or reference point of this television show. This show is an American spy fiction television series produced by Metro Goldwyn Mayer Television, and it first broadcasts on NBC. The series follows secret agents played by Robert Vaughn and David McCallum who work for a secret international counter-espionage law enforcement agency. Boy, that's a mouthful. And its acronym is UNCLE, U-N-C-L-E. The series premiered on September 22, 1964, completing its run in January, on January 15, 1968. So I guess they borrowed some sounds from that television show. Um... So Jimbo, just jump in here anytime if you got something sure. to correlate. Well, another uh, little tidbit from my book is the approach to making such a turnabout work without dishonestly misleading the audience is the same here as in that earlier show, which they're talking about um, basically when at the end we learn that she exists on a far planet and they are members mm-hmm. of the U.S. Air F- uh, Force space probe. We realize this, what happens is identical. In the earlier episode, The Invaders, it reverses it from the third from the sun. So oh. if you remember that episode. So it's yeah. basically a reverse of that. So uh, basically the farmhouse, as Sterling informs us, is the opening. Uh, it exists in one of those out-of-the-way places where electricity, radio, and other modern devices aren't pleasant or present. Sorry, A house untouched by progress. So as this lack of contemporary conveniences allows the woman's situation to turn into a nightmare. Invaders plays as an anti-nostalgic uh a piece by writers who provided the other side to Serling's story. Now, here's here's a uh, uh, here's probably my biggest gripe of this because I I was thinking of this when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, it says the woman tosses various objects, apparently food items, though they look nothing like what a typical American farm might produce, into a gigantic pot. She's making this gigantic pot of soup, whatever you will, mm-hmm. but it's only her. I mean, unless she's canning something, oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Or she has more family members, uh, unless she has, um, when she come to find out she's a giant, um, if her metabolism is greater, I don't know. But that oh, would probably be yeah. my one my one gripe about this episode. So this and other elements of this setting allow a hint of what's to come so that we don't feel unprepared at the final revelation. A nor this story takes place entirely at night. The drama without dialogue until the final minute provides a tour de force for Agnes Moorhead. She performs in a style that occupies a middle ground between the realistic approach we expect and a mime-like effect to convey emotional reactions and thoughts through exaggerated body language. The way in which this person reacts to what happens is not as a normal human would, which I would agree. We don't need to hear the woman speak in a foreign tongue to grasp that she's not of this earth. We can see it in her mannerisms, close enough to an earthling's, that the ending isn't given away, yet slightly stylized so that her every odd gesture helps to legitimize the revelation. Here's another uh, great point for this episode, is the shadow play that is lent uh, throughout this episode 
is uh, not is because of lack of electricity, yes, but because of the candlelight usage uh, and what makes the shadows and makes it really creepy. So everything we see is lit by candle inside the house or stairs when the woman crawls up on her roof. Her opening and closing of the trap door and tendency to, during moments of panic, drop her candle um, all allows for expression, expressionistic lighting. That the aliens are small introduces the relative concept that they are little if we contrast them to the woman. After she attacks them and a dying astronaut tries to warn her not to return to this planet, a race of giants, he says, it's clear that Sterling's fascination with size dominates even those episodes he did not personally write. Now, if when I'm remembering the episode, there is a scene where she takes her candle and she puts it under the bed. Do you mm-hmm. remember this where she's mm-hmm. looking? My thing is, why didn't the bed catch on fire? You know, I mean, because the flame, I mean, it's right there. That's just another little gripe I could complain about this episode. I love this episode, but I mean, just the pot, the big pot and the uh, candle burning under the thing is the only two real gripes I have about this episode. But I can overlook them for how great this episode is. So, yeah, uh, that that was brought up by one of the comments I read or, or heard something. The, the, the whole what you just brought up, Jimbo, the whole lantern at first and then lantern that she throws at this little spaceman and the fact that she's in a ramshackle farmhouse and fire like that, throwing that off would be very dangerous. Uh, th- that but but you got to remember it's on, it's on a alien planet. So fire and oxygen yeah. may not be present in the atmosphere because the humans are in a spacesuit. So it may be totally different on that planet than what it would be that we're used to on earth. Yeah, so that was one of the gripes that you 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 brought that up, and then someone else sort of echoed it, and some of the things that I was reading, and then the the whole lamp lamp or candle under the bed, and right. you can tell that I read something too where the getting the lighting set up, the mood and the lighting for this episode, it took a lot of extra work. I don't have the trivia in front of me, but it was interesting on how I think they used like six different sets of lights. I think I re- I read in order to make the light and the shadow look a certain way. Right. But yeah, that was another gripe that the the candle. That's what I thought. I remember initially watching like, oh, she's gonna put a candle in her bed. Who's gonna catch her bed on fire? You know. Um, right. Uh, but anyway, yeah, th- that that is cool. I, I will say that. Um, th- that was interesting to read about how you know complex it was to to put that light and shadow together uh, for the for this particular episode. Let me read something about the little alien invaders. At various times, the invader aliens emit a series of beeps. This, in fact, is Morse code. They seem to be purely yep. for effect. However, they don't convey a message relating to the plot, nor even anything intelligible, which led to the idea of an inflated spacesuit. Um, I got the idea from the little Michelin tire man, Hayes confessed, and William Tuttle then built the space visitors out of a latex type rubbery plastic material. So I know Jimbo, you got a bunch of stuff on the little spacemen, so take that away. Yeah, she's, uh, basically they model them from the drawing of the Michelin Tire Man, right? The reason I made them this kind of bulky round shape is that, first of all, they should not look like human beings. But secondly, after the fact, you had to say they were human beings. Aha! Then therefore they were in inflated spacesuits, right? The figures that were crafted were made of foam rubber and painted gold to give them a metallic sheen. Watching the episode, one would assume that they were given movement by some internal mechanism, but that wasn't the case. Hayes reveals that there was a slit up the back of each figure through which a person could insert his hand. To walk, the person put his fingers in the hollow of the legs. To raise the arms, the fingers went in there. 
Consequently, the figures could not move their arms and legs at the same time. A little ray gun was made to light up by running a wire to an external battery with a button on it. The same was done with an antenna on one of the creature's heads. To disguise the arm sticking out of the back, Hayes claims that the operator wore a black sleeve, making it invisible against a dark background, and he should know he was the operator. Mm -hmm. So Hayes was actually the operator. So Hayes not only gave movement to the tiny figures, he gave them voice as well. Apart from Sterling's narration, there is only one speech in the entire show, and that of the remaining dying astronaut warning Earth, This uh, that was my voice, says Hayes, because I was those little guys. Still, there were pl- still plenty of challenges left to overcome. The flying saucer the little men land in was easy. Simply pull the miniature ship from Forbidden Planet out again, although a rougher model was made for those shots in which the woman attacks it with an axe. Uh, there were uh, the interior of the cabin, since at the end it was revealed to be on an alien planet. Nothing could be obviously of Earth origin, yet nothing should be so peculiar as to telegraph the ending. So we used just the basic thing, said Hayes. A curtain was just basically a curtain. A chair was just the shape of a chair. There was no style that could be attributed to any particular period in history or place. Yet basically it came down to what would be on a farm in the most primitive type of communities. The cabin used was a small one and was a considerable challenge. Among those responsible was director of photography George Clemens, whose moody camera work adds immensely to the suspense. Most challenging him was the scene in which Moorhead had to carry a candle from room to room with the candle supposedly the only light source. Hmm. I would say that was a problem, said Clemens. To truly make it look right, you had to visualize where your shadows change lights. Clemens put lights all over the set with dimmer switches and dimmer boys to work them. In that particular picture, I had to take over a couple of dimmers myself, uh, being able to know just what I wanted and the time to make the moves. But I think I had about six dimmer boys, six lights, and all that had to be synchronized. One source would come up uh, and the other would go out as she went in from room to room. I was very happy with the result I was able to achieve because it looked real to me after I finally got to see it. Shooting went quickly and easily. By being able to incorporate my little guys in with her and so forth, I was able to keep it down to a minimum of cuts, said Hayes. I would rehearse for about a half a day with her and with the camera for one piece of film, and then we would do it. It would take like four hours of rehearsal and then four minutes to shoot it. Then another long, long period of rehearsing and then a short piece of film. And when the seven or eight pieces of the film were put together, we had our half-hour show. Surprisingly... One person not enamored of this episode is Richard Matheson. I never liked it, he says. I don't like it today. For one thing, I think it's incredibly slow moving. My script had twice as much incident as they used in the final version. It moved like a shot. The teaser alone of the woman cutting vegetables and then hearing the noise, it seems like it takes her forever to get up to the roof. Also, I thought those little roly-poly dolls was ridiculous looking. The way I had written it, you would only catch very quick views of them and never anything clear. To see those little uh, waddling things across the floor was about as frightening as Peter Rabbit coming to you. (laughs) Although Matheson is not a fan, The Invaders does have its admirers. One of these is writer Theodore Sturgeon. I love The Twilight Zone, says Sturgeon, and I think of all the episodes, the one I liked the most was The Invaders. Years ago, a producer happened to be a very schlock producer, but he knew what he was talking about. Said if a blind man sits in front of a television set listening to a drama and he can tell you afterwards what it was about, then the director, the producer, the writer, and everybody else have failed. Likewise, if a deaf man watches a television show and can tell you what the whole thing was about, then it was uh, a success. 
that is a way of underlining the fact that it's visually medium. Well, Matheson wrote that one without one word for dialogue. There were some grunts and screams in it, but no dialogue whatsoever. And it really truly came to fruition as kind of visual medium that it is. Yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. Four hours of rehearsal for four minutes. For four uh, minutes. Yep. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Um, just by way of general trivia, the name of the invaders, one of the invaders is either Grissom or Gresham. Gus Grissom was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts for NASA and the command pilot of Gemini 3. He was killed in a fire in Apollo 1 during the pre-launch test on January 27th, 1967, exactly six years after this episode originally aired. So... Shout out to uh, to Gus Grissom. I couldn't. I think it's Gresham in the episode. I couldn't really tell, but the closed caption yeah. says Gresham. But either way, that's kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> uh, the earliest documented origin of this episode began with a progress report dated June thirtieth, nineteen sixty, revealing that Richard Matheson had committed to the teleplay. This particular episode was at first titled "Devil Doll," and it was script number forty nine. The first draft due for submission on July 5th, as Matheson told Stanley Waiter in the commentary for Prey in his collected series, I had originally submitted the story, or at least the premise, to the Twilight Zone, and they rejected it because they thought it was too grim. So I turned it around into a science fiction story, and it became The Invaders, the episode that Agnes Moorhead was in. Because it's the same story, except here's, or excuse me, it's the same story, except there's only one doll. Later on, I wrote the premise for uh, the short story called Prey, Prey, and Playboy bought it, published in Playboy in 1969, <laughs> and memory had, yeah, memor- memorably adapted by Richard Matheson himself. Uh, a segmented titled, a segment inside the Playboy was titled Amelia, of the TV movie trilogy, t- trilogy of terror. Sorry, I'm tripping over myself so there was a another adaptation called amelia for a tv trilogy of terror in 1975 have you ever seen trilogy of terror i haven't it was played by karen black and tells the story of a woman terrorizing her apartment by a fetish doll possessed by the spirit of a zuni warrior that reminds me of that it's crazy dude yeah it reminds me of that movie megan that i just went seen with my daughter (laughs) crazy doll a chucky or something like that you know um here's one when a fan wrote to rod serling in 1960 asking for more out of this world plots serling wrote back next season i'll see what i can do about dimensional stories and space travel my sponsors being rather uniquely square gentlemen have taken a somewhat dim view of science fiction next season however we hope to slip a few by them so that guy got what he asked for in this episode for sure he wanted more out of this world science fiction stuff um here's a little bit about the trick photography or lack thereof for this episode originally buck houghton and rolf rolf ralph w nelson proposed doing a trick photography for the little people using rear projection or building big sets and having real people do them the kind of photography applied in such movies as Dr. Cyclops in 1940. Have you seen that, Jimbo? 
Dr. Cyclops? Mm-mm. No, me neither. You? I always I always think when, when I was reading this, I always think about, have you seen the picture on Facebook of the set that they build for Ghostbusters for the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? And yeah, it's like a still photo out. where it's real big and they build miniature cars and buildings and stuff. That's what I think of when I think of this. So originally they were going to do that kind of trick photography, um, but Hayes disagreed. And having the little characters play in the scene with her, she could literally grab a hold of them, throw them into the fireplace, see one up on the window ledge, and give it a hit, and so forth. It was better than cutting away or doing some trick photography. So we didn't use special effects after the facts. And that's what she, Bless you. And that's what they do in the actual episode. She kicks one... Remember, she kicks one down the, the roof hatch. She obviously slams one against the table when she catches it in the she she, in the she puts the one in the bed sheet and she puts it in the uh like that box and sits on it or whatever remember yeah so i mean i think that that was hayes's vision he wanted to to have her you know kick him around and throw him around and stuff and throw lanterns at him and and so that's what they ended up uh getting out of the episode um let's see Director Hayes drew sketches of the visitors from outer space, unique enough to disguise their humanity, but could later be accepted by the viewers as human beings. A shapeless look is what Hayes intended. And he goes on to talk about Agnes Moorhead. Um, well, actually, that's all I have for that uh, particular thing. I, I, I was. You already talked about how it was. Mo- it was sort of modeled after the Michelin Man. And all that in your little discourse earlier. Well, here's a, a one or two little criticisms that I read or goofs, if you will. I'll just go ahead and read those. And I think that pretty much ends what I have as far as notes and so forth. But certain people who are a little bit critical say that uh, the isolated farm woman leads a meager existence with no luxuries in sight. Her hands, however, in several close-ups show Miss Moorhead's long tapered, finely manicured, and polished fingernails, something that wouldn't have been a consideration for the character. So that's one little criticism. I didn't really notice until I went back. It it does make sense, though, that her hands would be rough and if she worked on a, a farm or whatever, and they wouldn't be. It never, you so. never, it never says she's the one that works on the farm. Yeah, but... You don't I know mean, if she has a family or not. two together, so I guess she wouldn't have finely manicured hands if she lived that kind of existence, but... Here's another one, um, and this one's debatable, too. I mean, however you want to look at it. This may be attributable to artistic license. However, Rod appears in the prologue on the same visual scale as the old woman. Technically, as a human, he would have appeared on the scale of the invaders. Since he appears in front of the house, however, that may be revealed. That may have revealed the plot. However, Serling does not exist in the universe with the characters so his appearance relative to the characters would be irrelevant so that's sort of the the counter argument to that should he have been on the yeah, same I think scale that, as the woman but no i think that's a exist? i think that's a i think that's a pretty good misdirection because if you did that then he would know you would know the plot right away right which they did a really good job of the the twist in this is is good i mean i couldn't really yeah i mean it's probably not as good as I have the beholder, but it's it is a good twist. I will give it that at the, you know, at the end, it does a very good job of leading you down one path and then pulling the rug out from under you. So, anything yeah. else, Jimbo? That kind of wraps up what I have as far as trivia and so forth. Well, 
not till I get to my ode to Eric. So, Eric, I'm going to throw it to you first. Give me your thoughts on this episode. Okay. Um, uh, my dislike of the episode remains the same, kind of. However, my admiration and respect for Mrs. Agnes Moorhead has grown by leaps and bounds. By all accounts, she was a classy lady, a woman of faith, who was very well educated and respected by her peers. I can't deny her talent, but this episode just didn't do it for me for a couple of reasons. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why it was difficult for me. It's singular, singularly acted, which we've talked about this at some length. Those are difficult episodes. And you agree with me on some episodes. It's hard for you to, to stay engaged in other episodes. And I talked about this off the top, at least in the King nine will not return. And, Nervous Man in a $4 Room, there is some sort of inner dialogue or whatever. That helps a little bit. It was really difficult for me with the no dialogue at all. The animalistic grunts were a bit cringeworthy at times for me. Like She she did play that like a, a wounded animal. I, I know I read that somewhere where that's sort of the headspace that she kind of tried to get into. But I have a question for you in regards to that. Because I was reading something, a commentary about it or a comment on the episode was she was the old woman mute or does she does she is as a giant alien does she just not have a language and so i kind of did a little google search on mute i guess there's different types of being mute like some people who are mute or dumb if you want to use an older term like they can still make sounds and grunts and noises and then there are others who can't make they don't actually even make a sound when they sneeze so there are two different types so i'm wondering was could she speak and just didn't speak or because she was was that on purpose because they want to you know keep portraying her as an alien or i don't know i just that was just kind of off the top of my head was she actually mute or did she just not speak because she didn't have a language or was she the only one on the planet yeah right i mean that that would you don't know yeah she wouldn't i say that's that's neither here nor there yeah i mean i I just i'm not gonna i'm not gonna cut straws over that that's yeah, it was just something, something that it, that came up in my mind. I wonder, you know, if that was done on purpose. It doesn't say anywhere, you know, or anyway, whatever. That was just something that I thought of. Was she actually mute or was there just no language on that planet? And I would agree with Matheson that the movement to get her on the roof to the flying saucer moved so slowly that it was hard to stay engaged. That's my main criticism is that that beginning is the pacing is so slow for me. I mean, I remember watching it the first time and just being like, all right, come on, let's get to, you know, the action and stuff. And it was really hard for me to stay engaged. So that's one of my, you know, my main criticisms of why I don't like it. Can't take anything away from the twist or Agnes Moorhead herself, like I said before, but I, I still would probably rate it like in a six. Just, just, I know I go against the grain. I'm very well aware of that, and everyone loves this episode, and it's the greatest Twilight Zone episode ever, but I just can't do it. So, Jimbo, your thoughts. Go ahead and give me the, the ode. Uh, first of all, let me give you my thoughts. Number one, I think they did a great play with the lighting and the shadowing and, and all that. I think they built the suspense very well. I really thought it was a human woman getting attacked by aliens, um, especially mm-hmm. when they do the x-ray gun and our skin's like boiling over with the bumps and everything mm-hmm. on it. 
Um, she did an outstanding job without even being in a speaking role, which she's known for her speaking roles. Without even being in a speaking role, she captivated the audience. She commanded the scenes, um, and you paid attention. And you actually was kind of afraid for this lady. Um, like I said, the only ones that I – the problems that I had was the big bowl of soup, which I don't know what they do on that planet, that, that thing. And then, um, you know, uh, what was the other one I said? Uh the one about the the candle under the bed, but I could debunk that by being maybe the atmosphere wasn't as good. So here is my ode to Eric. Are you ready? You're gonna lay it on me. Set on an isolate farmland, there is an old lady cooking by hand. When a noise arises from above, she soon discovers visitors not of love. She grabs a knife or two or three and sees alien invaders attacking unpleasantly. Through strife and aggression, does she proceed? Just leave me alone, her passionate plea. She kills one, then two, and on to three. She hits the UFO with passionate glee. <laughs> giants, giants, a voice is heard saying, as the lady swings down violently, slaying. Eric may think this episode is bad. I'm sure Twilight Zone fans, this makes them sad. Fear not, for I shall put him in his place. To bring him to his senses, confronted face to face. <laughs> Just because there is no time-traveling chatter, this is a great episode, so really shouldn't matter. For this episode is heads above rest, and it is, no, and it is noteworthy as one of the best. Oh, very well done. And I'm going to drop my mic. Very well There you done. go. Mic drop on Eric. Very so, there definitely, this your, is rated as an 8.1. This is... Hey, I got, I got a clap. All right. Uh, yeah, this is rated as an eight point one out of ten on almost everywhere you look. I think just from her sheer performance alone, that is worthy of an eight. So I am going to actually put this as an eight point five. I think it is one of the best episodes of the Twilight Zone. The twist at the end, um, especially when the camera pans down and says, "What to say?" Like NASA or property of the U.S. Air mm -hmm. Force or whatever on the, on the thing. I think the twist was there. It had me fooled the entire time because I thought, "Oh man, this is this is aliens," you know. But you know, you're in the Twilight Zone, so you know there's got to be some sort of twist coming. Yeah. Um, and I just think that it's it's one of the best single performances you're going to see in the Twilight Zone, even though there is no speaking parts. I mean, I think back um, to where Burgess Meredith, if we if we go to just his uh, the one time enough at last, where once everybody is gone and he's on his own, he doesn't really say anything except to himself either. So it's a single performance, but yet we rated that as one of the highest episodes of all time uh from season one me and you both i think we both ranked it one and two that year or last season um and i think you can put her performance on par with that performance of him and they're they could probably be equal just because the performances that they gave really got you into their characters because you felt terrible terrible for Burgess Meredith in that episode mm -hmm. and you feel terrible for this lady she's being traumatized in her own house so that's my feelings, and that's why I think it is a great episode, and I think that it is justifiably at least a solid eight, maybe an eight five. So that's my All take. Right. Very well. You got anything else you want to plug the plug our special? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, if this, you want to uh, go ahead and look up, go ahead and look up and see what the next episode is going to be while I'm doing this, Eric. If you can look up what uh, episode uh, sixteen is, uh, if you want to follow us on. Facebook. We are the Tragedy of Cinema podcast on Facebook. Uh, Ari gets on there and posts a bunch of different stuff too, as well as Kyle and myself. 
Um, if you want to email us at thetragedyofcinema at gmail.com, we'll read it. If you want to leave us a review. Also, coming up on May 20th, come see, yes, ADZ and me and Kyle at the Haunted Gel in Boone County, Indiana, in Lebanon, uh, where we'll be doing a live show. Um, so if you want to come take some pictures, get autographs of ADZ, you know, tell him how wrong <laughs> he is about the invaders. <laughs> uh, but yeah, come see us, get your tickets, they're selling out fast, so uh, please make sure you grab them if you want to come see us. Uh, we have a good time. Uh, so yes, uh, Emory family, we will make sure Eric is there this time so we can pick on him. So, <laughs> all right. Um, and, so Eric, uh, did you find out what episode yeah, 16 was? Yeah. Our next episode, we will be covering the infamous or famous, uh, penny for your thoughts. And it stars Dick York, who has a connection to Mrs. Mag- Agnes Moorhead from this particular episode. They played on that, uh, great series bewitched. Uh, in the 1960s, so tune in for that. It's uh, it's a yeah, pretty good. It's, it's another. A pretty good it's episode. a pretty good episode too. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's episode. pretty good. I like it. Um, so we'll cover that one next time. So until next time, uh, live long and prosper, and uh, stay in the fifth <laughs> dimension. So Jimbo. <laughs> well, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. These are the invaders, the tiny beings from the tiny place called Earth who would take the giant step across the sky to the question marks that sparkle and beckon from the vastness of a universe only to be imagined. The invaders, who found out that a one-way ticket to the stars beyond has the ultimate price tag. And we have just seen it entered in a ledger that covers all the transactions of the universe. A bill stamp paid in full and to be found on file in the Twilight Zone.